Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ask a Physical Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Tannis Kitchener, physical therapist, and I've got Caitlin Tyvey joining me, who's also a doctor of physical therapy, and we are coming at you from the studio at KDNK. Awesome. Um, so if you missed our last episode, Caitlin and I talked about the basics of pelvic health physical therapy and some common questions. And we decided that we did not get as deep as we wanted to, and we want to share some more info with you. Um, so I asked her back, and she was she was game. So here we are. So this episode's going to be more like the things you didn't know that you didn't know about pelvic health PT. I love it. <laughs> Sound good? Kind of a grab bag of like variety of questions that we get, some things that we would like to spread the word on, and um, I hope you enjoy. Sounds great. All right. So again, if you missed the last episode, please go back. It'll give you a little more um, info and insight on general pelvic health PT. And uh, remember, you can listen to all of the past episodes on demand wherever you listen to your podcasts, ideally at kdnk.org. Okay. Um, So one of the questions about pelvic health PT is, am I too old? Is it too late? (laughs) It's never too late, at least in my book. I get this a lot from folks who feel like, ah, well, it's just been too long since my pregnancy or since that surgery or since this symptom started. Can I ever fix it? It is even worth, is it even worth trying? And in my book, I think it's always worth trying. And I have seen real life evidence of people in their 70s and 80s making improvements in all areas of their body, but especially in their pelvic floor and their pelvic health in general. How about you? Same. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Same. Um, and maybe even you did the work 30 years ago postpartum. And if you did, amazing, because most women in the U.S. did not get pelvic health PT 30 years ago. Um, but maybe you need a tune-up. Exactly. I also see people, too, thinking, oh, it was so long ago. How could it possibly matter anymore? Like folks who, for example, 30 years ago had an episiotomy, a surgical procedure to help them deliver their baby vaginally. Uh, And they think, oh, well, that was so long ago. That scar is healed. My pelvic floor has healed now. Nothing's wrong. And they don't realize until we start looking at it that there's some remaining dysfunction from 30 years ago. So Mm -hmm. I think it goes both ways. Yep. Oh, and if you're a guy and you're thinking about turning this off, (laughs) please don't. (laughs) We've got stuff for you, too. We've got stuff for you. In fact, if you have a child, the next question's for you. But even if you don't have a child, you have a pelvis and a pelvic floor. And uh, this might help you. And I have a feeling you know a woman or two, and you might actually get a little more insight onto some of the stuff they're going through if some of this is female-specific. Exactly. So maybe hang tight. Unless you (laughs) just really need to rock out to some music, then do that. Do what you need. Um, So what about children? Like, does my child maybe need pelvic health PT? Yeah, I think you just answered it. Kids have pelvises, so they can definitely benefit from pelvic health uh, assessment and treatment for sure. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Tannis, because I know you've seen a good number of, of children for pelvic disorders and conditions. And how do you go about helping them? And how do the, how do you treat them differently or help manage them differently than an adult? Mm, I love working with kiddos. So it just really makes things so light and fun. And you got to come at it from a totally different perspective, yeah. um, which is great for me because I, I internally think of things so scientifically. Mm-hmm. And so when I have to bring my playful side, it's uh, it, it helps my day a lot. I often will see kiddos who are struggling with constipation, yeah. chronic constipation, and sometimes general bowel issues. So they might flux between constipation, 
diarrhea, maybe bowel accidents, maybe bladder accidents. Yeah. Um, if you're getting to the point where you're like, yeah, it seems like my kiddo should be well potty trained by now and they're not, get a team around you. Like involve the pediatrician. They might want to do what's called a KUB. Um, like a kidney ureter, bladder um, x-ray to check for constipation. Even if you don't think your kid's constipated because they are having bowel movements, um, you can have what's called a functional constipation where the stool makes its way around the blockage, but the kid is still dealing with the blockage and an inefficient um, evacuation system. And so that can have like all kinds of ramifications as far as potty training or continence. Exactly. Um, And so... chat with your pediatrician, see if they think it's appropriate to do the imaging just to either rule it out or identify it um, because it can be hired to identify otherwise. And they can help you get started on like maybe some extra fiber. I've listened to some pediatric specialists um, and like urology and stuff say like, as far as they're concerned, every kid is constipated to an extent and needs more fiber. (laughs) Exactly. Granted, they see, you know, that's the population they see, right? But it means a lot to me to hear that. Yeah. And what is, can you define constipation? Because I find that people don't often actually know what constipation means. They think it means you never, ever have a poop. And that's not necessarily true, right? <laughs> true. So you've got pretty significant constipation if you're like going to the bathroom every three days. Um, every other day would arguably, I don't know if you want to argue against that or for that, but that would be considered not a normal or ideal schedule and probably constipation. Um, And then you've got to think about diameter, like look at what's coming out. Is the diameter normal? Um, Has it changed? Is it small? Is the texture normal? Is it super hard? Is it painful? Are you having to really push to to evacuate? So at least daily, um, decent like texture where you're not having to push, it's not painful Mm -hmm. and reasonable size. Does that meet your criteria? Yeah. And I think with kids too, I've always found too that, I mean, Kids, like you said, they bring out our playful side. And if you're, if you as an adult are willing to ask your kid, hey, what'd your poop look like? It might be a funny game and it makes it less scary for your kid to approach you with symptoms. Mm-hmm. That'll translate into later life, hopefully, so that in their teen years and their young adult years, they feel comfortable with talking, you, talking to you about all t- different types of health. Yeah. Yeah. And they start to maybe, I mean... We want to have that healthy balance, right? Where totally. your kids aren't obsessed with their health, but they are aware, right? Exactly. So you and I as health providers know that what your stool looks like can say a lot about your health. Totally. We learned early on in school, like if it's green, you might have gallbladder issues. If it's dark and black, you might have internal bleeding. Mm-hmm. You know, so knowing and change in size and all of that stuff, that can be one of the first indicators that something's going on. Exactly. And what a gift to give your child and yourself to have that awareness. Totally. I think the other thing, too, that folks don't often think about, which I see a lot with kids, is little rabbit poops. Little, Even if they're they're having a bowel movement regularly, if it's just tiny little balls that come out one after another, that can count as constipation, and that could be contributing to some of their other problems. Yeah, there is a um, chart that you can find online. Yeah. The Bristol Stool Bristol chart? Bristol Stool Scale, yeah. B-R-I-S-T-O-L, and it's like a grade one through four? Or five, seven, I think, seven? actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, cause three and four are kind of considered like normal, Ideal, right? Yep. So yeah, one is extra hard, extra firm, little rabbit size. Um, seven is more like diarrhea, water. water. Yep. Um, and so having an idea of where you are, but it, that could give you an idea of having a conversation, not totally. only with your kid, but maybe for yourself with your doctor, um, and just the awareness of that. 
So the other thing that I do with kiddos is we talked a little bit about how we do an examination, and that Mm -hmm. looks very different with kids. So we've got the visual rehab ultrasound where I can have them look at their bladder, like through their stomach, which is kind of fun. (laughs) And I can have them figure out how to move their bladder around using their muscles and their breathing, and we call them bladder jumps or, you know, whatever resonates with with that kiddo. Um, we probably take a peek at like their abdominal wall tension. Sometimes they're holding a lot of tension and we get to do little belly massages and rainbow massages. Um, and then I do my best at the end of like, like kind of free for all within, you know, within reason of, okay, let's have some fun or maybe intermixed. But all the while I have an agenda, which is like, are we working your core? How are you breathing? Are we Mm -hmm. working your single leg balance for your pelvic stability? Um, so those are some pretty common things that I see and work with in kiddos. Yeah. I always think that people that work with peds are the most, um, creative of all healthcare professionals. I love it. It's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fun. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's important to know that your child could potentially benefit from pelvic health PT and there are PTs out there that, that can help. Yeah, exactly. Um, any other questions or thoughts on pediatric I think that was, I think that was pretty helpful. Yeah. And it can start from, I, I don't, I can't say that I've seen any kiddo under the age of like five for mm-hmm. pelvic health stuff. Yeah. Usually you want to give them till at least five to see how things sort out unless right. there's something significant. And then you need to start with the, their doctor, totally. their MD or DO, I should say. Um, and then I see all age ranges from five up to you know, 95, 95, <laughs> 105. If, if you make it to me at 105, awesome. Um, so that, that I love to see the age, age range. Yeah. Um, here's another question I get a bunch. If I have bowel and bladder issues, shouldn't I just do more Kegels? Oh, my favorite question. And my favorite one to just screech no as the answer, or maybe let me amend that. Not necessarily. In some situations. <laughs> we are not Kegel haters. Yes, we aren't Kegel haters. However, I do I do prefer pelvic floor contraction because uh, the, the term Kegel was named after just some old guy back in the 50s, uh, uh, an American uh, obstetrician gynecologist who invented it. Um, but that's they're, the, they're one and the same. A Kegel is a pelvic floor muscle contraction and importantly, the relaxation that follows it. And those exercises can be super valuable for a lot of people if you're doing them properly. The problem I have is when someone presents to a healthcare provider or other well-meaning person that just says, oh, you're leaking when you pee or you're leaking when you jump or when you sneeze or, oh, you can't poop? Well, you probably just need to make your muscles stronger. Just start squeezing. To me, that's like saying, yeah, just do bicep curls continuously throughout your entire day and that'll fix your shoulder pain. Not very logical, right? Mm -hmm. But because so many people either are uncomfortable talking about this subject or just don't have the training and want to give you something, that's what they default to mm-hmm. is Kegels or pelvic floor contractions, right? And yeah. I think that there is so much more available to treat these issues. Some people need less strengthening. They need more stretching, relaxation, or coordination, or any other number of combination of interventions, not just this one exercise mm-hmm. by itself. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? I agree. And even often I find even in people who are hypertonic, meaning, sorry, even in people who are weak, who mm-hmm. show muscle weakness, I'm also seeing signs of trigger points in certain areas. Because exactly. if one muscle is weak, others are taking over and trying to help compensate. Yeah. And so they might actually need some trigger point release, which could be internal. Totally. Um, to get things 
relaxed, reset, so that then we can retrain. Exactly. Reset, retrain, reload. Like, I love that philosophy. Exactly. Doesn't mean you'll never do a contraction again. It just might not be the appropriate thing for you right away, right now. Well, when somebody comes in and I put the ultrasound on them and I see, I say, hey, do what you think of as a pelvic floor contraction (laughs) or a Kegel. And they're just bearing down with all their might. And... Um, you know, I say, okay, well, tell me what you've been doing. They're like, I've been working on Kegels for years. I do try to do 50 a day yep. and they've been doing it wrong the whole time. Yep. And so, um, Kegels or pelvic floor contractions, it's important to have strength there. It's important to have endurance there. But what's most important is that we know you're actually doing it properly. Exactly. And I see a lot of folks who have increased muscle tone and they don't know how to relax. Totally. They don't know how to not contract. And so pulling them out of that phase of, okay, we got to contract, contract, contract too. We got to like work sometimes for a long time to long get time. relaxation. Yeah, totally. It's harder, I think, in my opinion, to teach someone to release and let go and to lengthen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we have a lot of tools for that. Totally. That, um, people, you know, they might be listening to this and go, cool, I don't need to go in. I just need <laughs> to relax my pelvic floor. Well, that'd be great if you can, <laughs> but just know that what we can do is internal check-in, trigger point release, yeah. education, breath work, um, tronic feedback, mm-hmm. biofeedback, and ultrasound bio, like visual feedback. So use the tools that you have at your disposal in your community if you're not getting where you need to go on your own. Exactly. Um, anything else on that that you'd well, like to? Well, Tannis, you just said electric feedback. Does that mean my pelvic floor PT is going to electrocute my 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 private parts? I only do that to a few select people. (laughs) (laughs) I say that like a joke, but we do. So um, I do have a few folks who end up getting, I'm glad you asked that. I do have a few folks who end up getting neuromuscular electrical stimulation units. And um, that gives just, it's like a TENS unit, but a little bit stronger and they have full control. So they slowly crank it up until they start to feel like a little tingling and then a little, ideally a muscle contraction. So the machine actually kind of helps create that electrical signal that should be coming from the spinal cord to the muscle. Um, But somehow there's like a disruption. Sometimes it's a spinal cord injury. Sometimes it's a different kind of injury. And so it kind of jumpstarts the muscle and then they can start to contract with it. And so we're retraining the muscle and the brain together, increasing strength and endurance until they can do it on their own. Then we ditch that. Then we also have biofeedback, which is separate. So Mm -hmm. we have the electrical stimulation that stimulates the muscle. And then we have the biofeedback that gives us um, either an audible sound or a light bar that shows us how contracted our muscle is or how high the electrical activity in the muscle is. So we use that a lot for down training, mostly is what, well, I use it for both down training and up training. Yeah. where people can actually see the lights move. Mm -hmm. And I used to use that a lot more before I got the ultrasound unit. Yeah. Um, the ultrasound has changed some of the way I practice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The biofeedback is helpful, but I found it to be very finicky. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, not always super reliable. And sometimes it just took more time to get it really dialed in. Yep. Um, and so the ultrasound just seems so much more consistent and people can actually see the anatomy versus just the light bar. Exactly. But we do have it as a tool if it seems like it's appropriate for that person. Depends on the person. Totally. Yeah. I've also had people too who may have had what they what they w- were told was pelvic floor therapy in the past, um, but that consisted of them being uh, hooked up on one uh, an older school, an older version of a biofeedback unit with sensors either placed over the genitals or internally, depending on their anatomy, and left alone in a room for 20 minutes to do some exercises, looking at a screen mm. with very little guidance. 
And that doesn't mean that they received negligent or poor care. It may have simply been the only tool that was available at the time. But know that even though we're talking about things like biofeedback, it's not a one-and-done situation. In almost no case is there one intervention or one treatment that is going to cure or fix the problem. Usually we need a toolbox to pull from, right? Oh, absolutely. And you and I believe strongly that's not the kind of care we provide. Exactly. Um, but but there are things that, like, if somebody needs consistent biofeedback, they can buy a tool. We can talk to them about what we recommend. Yep. And then they can do it at home on their own daily or twice mm-hmm. a day. And then they come in and they still get one-on-one care of, like, okay, let's see where you're at. How have you progressed? What do we need to do with the rest of the body? Exactly. Um, again, reset, retrain, reload, and do it holistically from the whole body. 100%. I agree. Um what about, we, we touched a little bit on some of the conditions that we see quickly. And one of the things is PCOS, mm-hmm. which stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that we haven't talked about much in previous episodes. And I think that a lot of people don't know what it is, but there's a lot of people with it. Don't, don't even know they have it. Exactly. So can you tell us a little bit more about PCOS? Yeah, it's a, an area of interest of mine because it's really kind of blowing up in the women's health scene. And there's a lot more information it, about it out there in the ether. Um, and as you said, so many people have had it for a long time and aren't aware or were never diagnosed because it's difficult to diagnose. So the name, as Tana said, again, is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that basically means that it's a condition that we don't have great criteria for. But it involves, or so we thought, cysts, little fluid-filled sacs developing on the ovaries where the eggs are developed in the, in the female body. Turns out that that's not the only requirement. So the current kind of criteria to diagnose someone with PCOS, there's three components, and someone needs to have two of these three components. One is the cysts, the sacs on the ovaries, multiple. Two are high levels of androgens. So those are male-specific sex hormones like testosterone, which you may have heard of. We consider it male, but... Yes, exactly. It's, it. it's also, in, it's also in, uh, uh, present in females in lower quantities. So it has to be above a certain level in a female mm-hmm. person. Yep. And then irregularities in someone's menstruation and or ovulation, egg release. So if you have any two of those three, you can be considered to be uh, someone with PCOS. And it creates a whole host of different symptoms. But for many people, one of the first symptoms they present with or they recognize as a younger person is menstrual pain and period pain, which is so often written off of as, ah, it's just cramps. Take some ibuprofen, take some Motrin, and and you'll be fine. But there's a lot more to it than that. How about you? Are we in in, in agreement here? (laughs) Keep it going. Yeah. So I think... One of the things that we in our, our profession in public health are starting to move into more is how can we help these people because we don't yet have a cure for PCOS. And there's a lot of ongoing research. And one of the most interesting areas or exciting areas of research to me is uh, the research around the metabolic effects of PCOS. Because of these androgens, the elevated testosterone, Female-bodied people with PCOS tend to gain weight very quickly and gain it in a uh, very specific pattern. A lot of adipose tissue, fat tissue around the abdomen. They gain it in other places too, but it tends to settle there, and that can create problems like diabetes at an early age. 
it's nothing to do with aesthetics. It's merely the health impacts that this type of adipose tissue can have. And some encouraging research is showing that weight training, that the very specifically directed resistance training can help manage those metabolic effects, including the insulin resistance of diabetes, the effects on your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether someone wants to lose weight for aesthetic reasons, the weight training itself can be extremely helpful for helping people with PCOS manage their condition and the symptoms they have. Mm -hmm. And that's something we can help with from day one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I guess my only f add on to that is that do we believe that PCOS causes hyperandrogenism or mm. metabolic dysfunction or the other way around? Or do we know, is it more of a correlation than a causation? Yeah, we don't know yet. Exactly. Yeah. My, based on my um, kind of review of the literature, it makes me wonder if it's actually the metabolic issue and the hormone issues Cause first cause PCOS. PCOS is like a symptom exactly. of the other issues. But regardless, the treatment, you know, like you're saying, start with strength training. Mm -hmm. Super helpful for so many different reasons. Um, maybe, maybe your gynecologist has some options of like testing hormone levels and mm -hmm. seeing if there's any adapting they can do for that. Yeah. Um, maybe you've got a naturopath on board that can look at Leakage. your... Um, metabolic pathways and your detox pathways like is your testosterone actually getting converted to estrogen yeah. is your estrogen actually being detoxed out of your body once its use has been performed um we and nutritionists and um naturopaths and and a variety of different clinicians can maybe even chat with you about nutrition a huge component supplements. of this yes Right. And um, that's a lot to figure out on your own. Totally. So pull in a specialist who has some information for you and you might need a team and PTs can can specialize in that as well. Exactly. So what else would we maybe see as a pelvic health PT with people with PCOS besides yeah. needing to add in strength training? I think the biggest thing that I that hits that hits home to me pardon, is the management of period related pain. And as someone who menstruates, it's something I think about a lot. But historically, menstrual pain and period pain has really been um, sidelined or assumed to just be the norm. And even obviously, as Tina said, if you have PCOS or think you have it, you likely are going to need a team to help you manage the internal components, the organ components that someone like us isn't necessarily suited to treat. But the effects of years and years of chronic debilitating pain during one's menstrual cycle can create problems that weren't even there in the first place mm. in the musculature. I don't know about you, but I see this all the time in people with PCOS, endometriosis, and a few other conditions who've had extraordinarily painful periods. For example, they have a surgery like a hysterectomy to remove the what is thought to be the cause, and they still have all this pain around their cycle. And they're like, Caitlin, what? the organ's gone. Why does this still hurt? And honestly, we don't know 100% of the time, but a pattern that I see a lot is the muscles in the abdomen and the pelvic floor have become so tense and hypertonic, meaning extra tight and extra tense, from all these years of pain that the muscles are now the generators of the pain, even though the offending organ or what we thought was the problem is gone. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? I do. And I also, this is such a, a wormhole or totally. hole, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> that I'm about to enter, then we're not going to go that far. 
is the impact of the vagus nerve. Yeah. And huge. once it gets to so the vagus nerve is a nerve that um, it runs from the brain to the gut or vice versa, the gut to the brain. And we think about most nerves as being kind of two directional. They go from, from the brain down to the body, the body up to the brain. But the vagus nerve helps to manage our sympathetic and parasympathetic nerve pathways and kind of helps to decide whether we flip on the fight or flight response or we stay in rest and digest. Mm -hmm. Like where are we functioning from a nervous system perspective? And that has all kinds of implications on our adrenaline levels, on our cortisol levels, on our melatonin levels, like all of these things that can cause some of these symptoms. Um, But what we know is that the vagus nerve isn't 50-50 up and down. It's 80% gut to brain. So it begs the question of like, who's driving who? And if you've been struggling with pain in your abdominal area for so long, um, are there components that the nerve has just gotten super ramped up and it's not calming down for a variety of reasons, continued tension, maybe GI related issues. Um, Maybe it just hasn't been reset. Yeah. So... I agree. That's a whole nother <laughs> area of fascinating research yeah. and information. Va- polyvagal theory, vagus nerve yeah. um, stuff. And luckily, we live in a time where there's so much info on it. Like, we yeah. can get it. Um, so if I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners in our area already have some information on vagus nerve. Yeah, yeah. agree. Um, so we have a few minutes. Quickly, I would just want to make sure that we address one. If you heard the word endometriosis and that rung a bell and you want to learn more, you can go back and listen to an episode I did with Caitlin Kinney. Different in Caitlin. In the archives. <laughs> I've got wonderful Caitlins in my life. Um, and then we just want to share a little bit about some of the things that we can treat other than what we've talked about. And Caitlin, we got a minute for you to tell me where you really like to specialize mm-hmm. in pelvic health. Yeah, one of my uh, other passion areas is working with people with chronic pelvic pain conditions like those we just discussed, and especially people that uh, suffer with or or live with sexual dysfunction and sexual pain, because that's such a hard area for people to talk about and find good holistic care for. And for many people with sexual pain conditions, regardless of your sex or gender identity, there can be a lot that we can do in pelvic PT to help with that. So if that's you, please reach out. Reach out to me if you're local or even if you aren't, I'd love to find you help. Yeah. Um, that There was a case involving something like that that actually spurred me to say, to pick up the phone or actually rather the laptop and email KDNK and say, how do I get a show? Yep. <laughs> we have how to, do we get the word out? <laughs> we have to change this um, for people. Um, and then we talked about bowel management. And then we've talked about here and there on our shows, athletic performance. Yeah. And making sure that we're properly engaged. I see people who are great athletes and they become even better athletes when we discover that they're not engaging half of their abdominal wall and they're bearing down through their pelvic floor and we retrain it. And then all of a sudden they find their power that they didn't even know they were missing. Exactly. So that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day.